Uh, I was thinking today about the first time in college when I wanted to transfer. Um, it was the spring of my freshman year. I was at the gym. I was talking with Hot Pete. Um, Hot Pete is a name the girls gave him. Um, he was like six foot four, had a winning smile, and uh, could do his laundry on his abs. And um, so Hot Pete and I were pledging different fraternities, and we're in the gym, and he tells me that he's applying to Duke. Uh, to transfer, and that was the first time that anyone else had mentioned that they were thinking about transferring, and I told him I was applying to UVA to transfer, and um, I was so excited because I'd found a friend in my loneliness, like, hey, here's somebody else who knows what it feels like to feel like they're not in the right place because they don't they feel kind of lonely, um, and it turns out neither of us got into the schools we were transferred to, so we stayed at Tulane. We found out in the fall, and we were like, hey, you didn't leave, you didn't leave either. Um, so... But this idea of, like, of loneliness in college, this is something that I'm sure many of you are familiar with. Maybe you're a freshman, and everyone, or it feels like everyone has friends but you. Like, um, all the people who went to Summit, they all know each other, and because you didn't go to Summit, you feel like maybe you don't have friends um, here, like you're on the outside. Or maybe you have a class during lunch, and so when all the people you're becoming friends with are eating together, you... Um, you can't eat with them because you're in class, so you end up going to the pit at weird hours and eating alone. Um, or maybe you've recently poured your soul out to somebody, and um, as pouring your soul out to someone, um, and now you're not so sure that they're your friend, and you're living in fear, right, because you're terrified of being exposed. Or maybe, um, maybe you struggle with same-sex attraction, and you're in constant fear of someone finding out. Right? You, you have this facade, um, and you're just terrified. You're watching every move, terrified that someone's going to find out, um, and you're going to be exposed, and you're going to be um, ridiculed, and um, you're just terrified of being, of being found out. Um, or maybe, uh, maybe for you, it's that you went to the school with the same people, kindergarten through 12th grade, um, best friends in the world, and then you get to wake, and you just have this, you're just homesick. You're just longing for the people who you um, grew up with, who know you, and feel like no one is ever going to know you as well as they did. Um, Or maybe you just look different than everyone else, and you feel like you're on the outside. You feel like everyone's constantly judging you based on your appearance. Um, Maybe, maybe you're just a jerk, and uh, you've burned all the bridges in your life, and so you're lonely because you've just ostracized all your friends. Um, or maybe you live in South, right? Um, and whenever you tell anybody that you live in South, they reject you flat out. Who is that happening? Don't raise your hand because you'll get, you know, right? oh, a couple hands, right? Upperclassmen can do it. Feel free. But someone told me recently that South, nobody in South knows each other because everyone closes their doors. Like you've got these spacious suites and everyone closes their doors so no one knows each other. Like, so South people, like, y'all are lonely because other people don't like you and you guys don't even know each other. And South's hard. Um, or maybe, maybe it's that you're a junior, and all your friends are abroad, and for the first time, you're realizing that nobody knows the real you. Nobody knows the real you. Right? Whatever your circumstances, you know what it feels like to be lonely. Right? We know what this feels like, to be lonely. Um, I've got some quotes on the bulletin, if you guys have one of these orange pieces of paper, um, about loneliness. I'll start with the one from Sylvia Plath. This is what she says about loneliness. She says, God, but life is loneliness, despite all the opiates, despite the shrill, tinsel gaiety of parties with no purpose, despite the false grinning faces we all wear, and when at last you find someone to whom you feel you can pour out your soul, you stop in shock at the words you utter. They're so rusty, so ugly, so meaningless, and so feeble 
Um, so many of us have been feeble from being kept in that small, cramped, dark inside you for so long. Yes, there is joy, fulfillment, and companionship, but the loneliness of the soul and its appalling self-consciousness is horrible and overpowering. Um, or for Mother Teresa, she says, loneliness and the feeling of being unloved is the most terrible poverty. Or Henry Nowen, who was a Catholic priest um, who died about 15 years ago, said, um, we live in a society in which loneliness has become one of the most painful human wounds. And all around we see so many ways by which the people of the Western world are trying to escape this loneliness. So loneliness, this is something that we all know, right? And this semester in RUF, what we're doing together is we're reading the Gospel of John. And um, we're looking at Jesus and seeing how God has provided him as the answer to some of our fundamental questions as humans. Um, uh, a quote from, from Tim Keller that's also in your bulletin. Um, he says this. He says, Jesus himself is the main argument for why we should believe Christianity. So if we're trying to make sense of who God is, um, what the Christian faith makes sense of who God is, we should look at Jesus and see um, what he shows us about God and about the Christian faith. And tonight what we're going to do is we're going to look at Jesus and we're going to see how Jesus enters our loneliness in order to embrace us with his love. And we're going to do this in John 4. So this is printed on the back of your bulletin. Um, There's an outline there if you are someone who likes to take notes. Um, And I invite you to follow along. Uh, We're going to read John 4 verses 1 through 30. And this is the the word of God. Um, God gives it to us in love. Now when Jesus learned that the Pharisees had heard that Jesus was making and baptizing more disciples than John, although Jesus himself did not baptize, but only his disciples, he left Judea and departed again for Galilee. And he had to pass through Samaria. So he came to a town of Samaria called Sychar, near the field that Jacob had given to his son Joseph. Jacob's well was there. So Jesus, wearied as he was from his journey, was sitting beside the well. It was about the sixth hour. The sixth hour is about noon. A woman from Samaria came to draw water. Jesus said to her, Give me a drink. For his disciples had gone away into the city to buy food. The Samaritan woman said to him, How is it that you, a Jew, ask for a drink from me, a woman of Samaria? For Jews have no dealings with Samaritans. And Jesus answered her, If you knew the gift of God and who it is that is saying to you, Give me a drink, you would have asked him, and he would have given you living water. The woman said to him, Sir, you have nothing to draw water with, and the well is deep. Where do you get that living water? Are you greater than our father Jacob? He gave us the well and drank from it himself, as did his sons and his livestock. Jesus said to her, Everyone who drinks of this water will be thirsty again. But whoever drinks of the water that I will give him will never be thirsty again. The water that I will give him will become in him a spring of water welling up to eternal life. The woman said to him, Sir, give me this water so that I will not be thirsty or have to come here to drink water. Jesus said to her, Go, call your husband and come here. The woman answered him, I have no husband. Jesus said to her, You are right in saying I have no husband. For you have had five husbands, and the one you now have is not your husband. What you have said is true. The woman said to him, Sir, I perceive that you are a prophet. Our fathers worshipped on this mountain, but you say that in Jerusalem is the place where people ought to worship. And Jesus says to her, Woman, believe me. The hour is coming when neither on this mountain nor in Jerusalem will you worship the Father. You worship what you do not know. We worship what we know, for salvation is from the Jews. But the hour is coming and is now here when the true worshipers will worship the Father in spirit and truth. 
For the Father is seeking such people to worship him. God is spirit, and those who worship him must worship in spirit and truth. The woman said to him, I know that Messiah is coming, he who is called Christ. When he comes, he will tell us all things. And Jesus said to her, I who speak to you am he. Just then his disciples came back. They marveled that he was talking with a woman, but no one said, what do you seek, or why are you talking with her? So the woman left her water jar and went away into town and said to the people, Come, see a man who told me all that I ever did. Can this be the Christ? They went out of the town and were coming to him. This is the word of the Lord. Thank you, God. Please pray with me. Um, Father, we thank you for tonight, and um, we ask that you would help us by your spirit to make sense of what you say in your word, to show us Jesus and how um, he loves us and comes into our loneliness. We pray this in his name. Amen. Um, so what I'm saying tonight, uh, I'm, I got a lot of help from a friend named Robert, Robert Cunningham, who's the RUF campus minister at UVA, and so I'm really thankful for his help in, um, in what I'm saying. And um, what, uh, what I want to see first in our passage is that Jesus enters into our loneliness. Um, and what I mean by this, that Jesus enters into our loneliness, is that God's disposition towards you in your loneliness is to move towards you. Regardless of what you did or what has been done to you, um, even when, it, when you don't want to be near to yourself, God doesn't run away from you in your loneliness. He moves towards you. Now we see this in three ways in our passage. See that Jesus sees us, he seeks us, and he sits with us. So first, Jesus sees us. Now one of the remarkable things about this story in John 4 is that Jesus knows exactly who he's talking to the entire time. Right? He knows the woman's backstory, he knows the depths of her loneliness. In verse 7, we see that she's a woman from Samaria. And in verses 16 to 18, we learn that she's had five husbands, and she's currently with a man who won't claim her as a wife. Now, from the perspective of a first century Jew, um, she is ceremonially unclean because she's a Samaritan. Um, And any self-respecting Jew would avoid contact with her. So what does this mean that she's a Samaritan? Well, Samaria was this region um, just north of Jerusalem, and the first century Jew would have told you that Samaritans were half-breeds. Um, because after the Babylonian exile, when they came back, they mixed with Babylonians, and so they were um, ethnically not fully Jewish, and then religiously not fully Jewish. And so they had this sort of mixed religion that they practiced. Um, so she was from Samaria, and she's also a sexually promiscuous woman. Right? We see that she's had five husbands. The man that she's with now is not her husband. Um, so this would have been morally reprehensible to, um, to a first century Jewish man. And that she's alone at the well in the middle of the day. Um, wells were social places. Women would go together to gather water at wells to, together in the morning when it was cool. But she's there in the middle of the day alone. Right, this is like going to the pit by yourself when no one else is there on purpose. Um, so she's ostracized from her community um, that she's either been rejected from, right? Or um, think about yourself. Why would you sit alone at the pit? Either she's been rejected or um, she's afraid of being rejected. So she's there alone, excluding herself. Either way, all these things were things that she would probably prefer that no one know about her. We see that Jesus knows them. And he sees her as she is. He sees her as she is. He sees you as you are. And he doesn't turn away. So Jesus sees her. And what does he do? Well, he seeks her. 
He's intentionally pursuing this woman. We see this in verse 4. We're told that he had to pass through Samaria. Now, no Jew had to pass through Samaria. In fact, um, in the first century, they would have avoided it at all costs. There's actually a saying in that day that if a Jew and a Samaritan were to cross paths on the road, um, a good Jew would step off the road, possibly even into the ditch, so that their shadows wouldn't touch. This is hinted at in verse 9. Just in case we didn't know as the audience, we see that Jews have no dealings with Samaritans. And yet, what do we see Jesus doing in this passage? He's seeking this lonely, ceremonially unclean Samaritan woman. He knows every detail about her private life, and he seeks her. Right? He, not only does he see us, he seeks us, and finally he also sits with us. Who do you not want to be seen with? Who do you not want to be seen with? I remember the transition from middle school to high school um, when everyone found out whether they were cool or not and childhood friendships broke apart because some friends were deemed cool and others were deemed not cool, Um, right? Like every high school drama hinges on this post-pubescent reality. Um, It's like, is Nancy going to stay friends with Barb or is she going to be with that cool kid and hang out with that cute senior with the winning smile and his dad's beamer, right? What's going to happen? Right? We all have people who we don't want to be seen with. Right? Is it your freshman roommate, maybe? Um, or that guy who didn't get a bid? Or that girl who made out with everyone last semester? I mean, who do you not want to be seen with? Look at Jesus in this passage. He is well aware of the social customs of the day. No reputable Jewish man would ever associate with or want to be anywhere near a woman like this. Yet, what does Jesus do? He affirms her dignity by sitting with her, by asking her for help to get water, by taking her questions seriously. And in staying with her, he shows that he's not ashamed of being seen with her. And in all of these ways, we see that Jesus enters into our loneliness. And here's what I want you to hear tonight. First, that Jesus sees you. He knows everything about you. And that Jesus is seeking you. Right now, just as you are. And Jesus desires to sit with you. He's not ashamed of you. He desires you. Jesus doesn't desire your ideal self. He's not waiting for you to get your act together and become who you think you're supposed to be. He loves you. Jesus comes to enter into your loneliness. And he enters into our loneliness in order to embrace us with his love. Now the Bible tells a story. And it tells a story of a God, an eternal God, who has never been alone. And he's always existed in a community of love. And it tells us that God made humans in his image. And even though, and he made man in his image, and even though um, man existed in this perfect paradise, God still said to him, it is not good for man to be alone. We are not made for loneliness because we are made in the image of God. We are created for communion with God and for communion with one another. And the Bible tells us, it also tells us, that we rejected God. The one who created us out of his love, to love him and to love each other. We rejected him, and in our rejection of him, we brought loneliness and alienation upon ourselves. And yet, despite our rejection, despite our self-sabotage of sin, the Bible tells us that God loves you. And he will not abandon you in your loneliness. And he's committed to restoring you back to himself. And we see this most clearly as we see all things 
and the person of Jesus, who is the image of the invisible God. We're told in the New Testament that Jesus is God incarnate, God with flesh on. And although no one has ever seen God, when we see Jesus, when we look at Jesus, when we examine Jesus and his life and his character, we are seeing the character of God. We're seeing God himself. So this Jesus is the one who enters into our loneliness to embrace us with his love. And Jesus embraces us with his love by gently exposing what we lack in order to genuinely or to generously extend what we need. He exposes what we lack to generously extend what we need. First, he gently exposes what we lack. Now, we see this in the conversation that Jesus has with this woman about her thirst. Right? They're at the well. She's got a bucket. He says that he's got water, that if she drinks it, she'll never be thirsty again. She says she wants this water. And while they're talking about water, it's clear that they're not talking about water. Right? Um, they're actually talking about desire, a thirst that's, uh, that isn't quenchable with water. And with respect to our struggle against loneliness... Jesus is underscoring that we desire communion. We desire communion. We desire to be truly known and truly loved by another. And when Jesus starts asking her about her husband in verses 16 to 18, he's gently exposing that left to ourselves, we lack, we lack what we need to satisfy our deepest thirst. Yet Jesus doesn't do this to be cruel. He gently exposes what we lack in order to graciously extend to us what we need. You may be familiar with Brene Brown. Um, She is a researcher at the University of Houston, where she spent a considerable amount of time studying shame and vulnerability. Um, And she gave a TED Talk in 2010 called The Power of Vulnerability, which has had 30 million views. It's a fantastic, um, fantastic talk. And she says that the reason that we are here as humans, the reason that we exist as humans is connection. Connection with one another, connection with God. But in order to have connections, we have to allow ourselves to be seen. We have to allow ourselves to be really seen. Something that she calls excruciating vulnerability. In order for us to have the type of connection with others that we long for, we have to be excruciatingly vulnerable. And this is so hard for us because... Um, part of our loneliness is that we experience, many of us experience a deep and crippling shame. Shame is the obstacle to vulnerability. And vulnerability is the gateway to connection. In In her research, she's concluded that people with a strong sense of love and belonging, those who have connections, those who aren't lonely, are those who believe that they're worthy of love and belonging. Right? This is so simple. We long to be connected to other humans. And the only way that this can happen is through our own excruciating vulnerability. But we're so shrouded in shame that we're terrified of being vulnerable. Another way of saying this is that we long to be known and loved. But we're scared of allowing ourselves to be seen because we're afraid of being known and rejected. And look at the woman's response to Jesus exposing her in verse 19. Look at this with me. Um, he exposes her about her relationships with her husbands. In verse 19, he says, she says, look, I get it. You're some, you know my secrets somehow. You're a prophet. Um, I guess that means we're supposed to have some sort of theological conversation now about worship. All right, I'm not exactly sure why she does this, why she changes the, the conversation. Um, 
Maybe she's entering into this theological debate to avoid talking about the things that Jesus has just exposed. Maybe she's afraid of being known and rejected. Right, this happens all the time with me. I don't know if this happens with you all. Um, when I'm talking with someone and I get dangerously close to exposing something that I'm terrified of sharing, and I change the subject to something safer. Of course you never do that, right? Um, but the fascinating thing about Jesus in this story is that whether they're talking about water or th- and their thirst or about broken relationships or worship, Jesus is all talking about the same thing. He's talking about the same thing in this. All of these conversations are about worship. In exposing her thirst, Jesus offers her living water. He says, this, this image he's using of living water is referring to the Holy Spirit. He's saying to you, he's saying to her and to you, I know that you thirst for communion, but you're not going to find it at this well. In exposing her broken relationships, Jesus is saying to her, you're not going to find that communion you long for in another man or in another human. And with talking to her about worship, Jesus is saying to her, the communion that you long for, the answer to your loneliness, is ultimately found only in me. And this is why in verses 21 to 25, Jesus reveals this deep mystery to the lonely woman. That he is the the promised Messiah who has been sent by God the Father. He is God's search party to the world, especially to the lonely, seeking people to worship the Father in spirit and truth. Um, so this summer, Mary Clark and I got uh, sucked into Stranger Things. Have you guys seen this Netflix show? Some of you have? Oh, wow. Okay. Um, well, I won't give any spoilers so that you can go watch it. All right, so it's a mix between Steven Spielberg and Stephen King. Um, it's absolutely terrifying. Like, after we watched it, we had to watch Worst Cooks in America, um, which is great, but it was because we couldn't handle how absolutely scary Stranger Things was. It's only eight episodes, it gets better. Um, but um, the show opens with this mother who's lost her son, and um, she does whatever it takes to get him back. She goes to the chief of police, and she begs him to send out a search party. Um, there's this huge search party that goes out. Right? She risks being seen as insane for the sake of finding her son. She exhausts every resource she has to seek and search for her lost boy. Right, the, show, the show's crazy. Um, I'm not going to give spoilers. But uh, it's worth saying she goes to hell and back um, looking for her son. And that's the, sort of, that's the sort of seeking that Jesus is talking about in verse 23. Right, Jesus is the search party of God. He is the one who has come to us to restore to us the communion that we were created for. In Jesus, we see the posture towards us of God, um, the posture of God towards us in our loneliness, right? that he enters into our loneliness in order to embrace us with his love. So in closing, um, I just want to think for a few minutes about what this means for us. What does this mean for us? Um, this week I read about a, another woman from church history, St. Teresa of Avila, um, and Teresa of Avila lived in Spain in the 16th century during the Spanish Inquisition. And she, too, struggled with loneliness for cultural and personal reasons. And in one of her earliest works, she shares an experience, really a discovery, that set her life trajectory and led her to found 14 convents during the last few decades of her life. Do you all know what this discovery was? It was that in her loneliness, she was desired by God. This great discovery she had was that in her loneliness, she was desired by God. 
And because of this, she modeled all of her convents on the fundamental conviction of God's companionship with his people. Which she described as an increasing awareness of living within the moment of God's love. That we are recipients of an eternal love that is to be shared with others. Or in the words of our passage, that in our union with Christ, we have within us a spring of water welling up to eternal life. And her story, in many ways, helps us with our own application, which is twofold in this. Um, First, we need to learn to experience God's companionship amidst our own loneliness. Personally, I'm trying to learn what it means that God desires me, that God is always with me, that God can satisfy my deepest thirst. Um, And here at RUF, we believe that God has demonstrated this to us in Jesus who in his death he endured a loneliness, a physical and social and spiritual loneliness that is beyond our imagination. Um, Jesus did this. He entered into our loneliness um, through his own loneliness on the cross in order. He did this in order to enter into our loneliness so that he might um, receive us into the love of God, um, that we might be assured of God's presence with us. And one way that we're doing this, one way that I'm um, learning to experience God, God's companionship in my own loneliness is I'm, I'm trying to learn how to pray. Um, and the way we're doing this is as a staff, Taylor and Sam and I pray together every, every day at 2.30. You all are welcome to join us um, if you want to come join us. And um, my hope is that in this, when we, when we pray together, that we're, gonna, we're learning to experience God's companionship in the midst of our everyday lives, in the midst of the mundaneness of our lives. And the second thing I want to say is that we need to learn how to extend God's love to the lonely. To be a companion of God entails being a participant in his mission. And we get a glimpse of this at the end of the story, whereas the woman is embraced by Jesus in her loneliness. She cannot help but go and share this good news about Jesus with the town, right? And this is the town that's probably ostracized her. So she goes with this great news, come see the man who's told me all that I've ever done. This man who's known and loved me, come see him. Could this be the Christ? Now, um, there are many ways to begin learning these things. Um, To begin learning these things. To begin learning how to experience God's companionship in our loneliness and to learn how to extend God's love to the lonely. Um, But the one thing I want you to consider in this is um, to consider this in your friendships within RUF. What would it look like for you to see your friendships here as a place for you to be known and loved? To entrust yourselves to one another. To allow each other to enter into your loneliness. And to extend the embrace of Christ to each other through prayer. And then, what would it look like for you to see your RUF friendships as a place for you to extend the companionship of God to others? For your relationships to be, um, in a way, a microcosm of the Trinity, of the love of God. Where, as the lonely come and experience your friendship, um, they come to know the one who sees them and seeks them and sits with them. In order to embrace them with his love. This is my final thought for tonight. Um, So I said Leah, today is Leo's fifth birthday. Um, This weekend, we went with RUF to the fall conference, which was down at Camp Greystone. 
in North Carolina, um, about three hours from here. And um, on Saturday, they opened the water slide. Now, this is my first time experiencing the Camp Greystone water slide. It's amazing. Um, you guys need to come next year just for the water slide. Um, it's like this 100-foot-long tarp suspended by metal cables with um, tons of water being pumped down it. And so it look, when you're watching, it looks kind of slow. Um, but when you get on it, it is the fastest, longest water slide. It was, it was amazing. So Leo really wants to do the water slide. And so we get our life vests on, we, we go through the woods, we climb to the top, um, and he's terrified. And so um, I, laid, I sit on the slide, I put him on my lap, I grab him around, grab around his chest, we lay down, we go down the slide. Um, you end up like holding your breath and closing your eyes like 15 seconds before you get to the end because you're so terrified. Um, and so we get to the end, we get out of the water, and he is just lit up with excitement. Right? He is so thrilled. Daddy, let's do it again. I'm so scared. I don't want to do it again. No, let's go do it again. So we climb um, the tower again, uh, and we do it again, and we do it again, and we do it again. Um, and Leo, we're at the top, and he's like shaking. He's so excited and nervous. He's like, Daddy, I'm so scared, but I'm praying. That's so sweet. All right. So um, we go down seven times, and after the seventh time, Leo wants to go down by himself. And so he's really nervous about going down by himself. So I go down the water slide first. Um, I get in the water. I, I run really fast and really far. Yeah, you know, it's awesome. And then I'm waiting, for, I'm waiting for Leo to come down. And he weighs like maybe 45 pounds. So he's a little bit slower. And he doesn't know how to lay. So he's kind of spinning a little bit with his legs <laughs> in the air. Um, and he lands. He shoots off. He doesn't really shoot off the end. He kind of just plops off the end because <laughs> he's so small. And um, he pops up in the water. And he is just giddy. Like, just absolutely giddy with excitement. Let's do it again. So he ends up doing the water slide 12 times. <laughs> and on one, I don't know if it was the 10th or the 11th time or the 12th time, we're at the top of the water slide. And I'm like, and he's, he's talking about how many times he wants to do it. I want to do it three more times. I want to do it four more times. I want to do it 100 more times. And I'm like, it's a long afternoon. Um, Leo, how many more times do you want to do the water slide? And he goes, um, Oh, it's not how many times I want to do it. I want to do it so much. And he looks up at the, the clouds. He goes, I want to do it as much as those clouds, like as high as those clouds are. Like he's trying to articulate this unquantifiable desire to go down the water slide. Uh, isn't that awesome? Um, all right, here's why I tell you the story. Um, in a way, this is what Jesus is inviting us into. All right, in a way, this is what Jesus is inviting us into. Um, right? Just as in order for Leo to experience the exhilaration and joy of, of the water slide, the first seven times he had to be wrapped in my arms. Um, and he was scared and he was unsure of how to do it. Um, but he grew to be comfortable in my embrace on the slide. And so for the last five times he could do it and experience the joy for himself. Um, <laughs> And this is, this is what Jesus is inviting us to, that as we love one another, as we're known by one another, as um, we know each other in our loneliness, we can begin to extend that embrace to other people. That, and as they experience your love, um, they will um, know that they are seen. They will know that they are sought after. Um, and they will begin to perhaps believe in the God whom you worship. The one who extends his embrace to the lonely. Let's pray. Father, we, we love you and we thank you um, that you have sent Jesus, uh, the rescue party, to us. 
to seek us out, to restore us to your embrace. Lord, we're lonely and we ask for your help. Would you give us courage uh, to entrust our loneliness to one another, that we might receive the embrace of Christ from one another um, and extend this embrace um, to Wake Forest. We pray in the name of the Father, and the Son, and the Holy Spirit. Amen.